This training is part of a governance series that Resolve have developed to prepare board members and leadership to be better equipped for the governance journey. This resource has been prepared as much as possible to be generic and useful across the wide range of not-for-profit enterprises across the social sector globally. Resolve is a specialist governance consulting firm that operates worldwide in the areas of building healthy governance and management practices in not-for-profit organisations. These training modules delivered by Resolve seek to improve governance practices and are presented in a conversation-style podcast format so they're accessible to board members and leaders wherever they find themselves. You might like to listen to these topics as a group and discuss them or listen to them on your own in your car or at home. Our hope is that in providing a flexible format, board members and leaders alike can engage with this material and that it can lead to better board governance. In this podcast, we're going to discuss some of the key elements required to develop and maintain a healthy board and management relationship. But first, let's revisit why healthy governance is so important to a not-for-profit organization. A well-developed governance framework that includes good governance policies and practices is important to the health of an organization, as it provides the strong foundations and framework for the organization to thrive and contribute strategically, helping the not-for-profit impacting the community it serves. Not-for-profits form part of the social sector. Much of our own individual lives, the media, and society revolve around social aspects or relationships, which is also the case for not-for-profit organizations. If not-for-profit organizations simply try to adapt a corporate framework to their organizations, It's not going to satisfy the relationship-centered needs of a not-for-profit community. The community governance framework that's been developed by Resolve is centered around developing healthy relationships through the organizational policies and processes we employ. This centrality of relationships through shared purpose, values and vision is integral for -for not-for-profits establishing and maintaining a healthy organization. To learn more about Resolve's Community Governance Framework for Building Healthy Not-for-Profit Organizations, please pay a visit to the Resolve website at resolve.consulting. Now, let me introduce you to the first of our key healthy relationship elements, knowing and practicing the differences between governance and management. If there's one common but major issue experienced by boards and their management that Resolve has observed many times over many years, it's the relationship breakdown that can occur between board and its management. Usually, when we investigate a relationship breakdown between board and management, we find that there's disagreement or lack of clarity or understanding around the roles of each. For the purpose of this podcast, I'll talk in terms of the CEO representing management, However, I note your organization might have a team executive structure or another type of management structure. The principles will still apply. The problem is when a not-for-profit first commences operations, it's usually pretty small. Almost always in those early years, the board is often very hands-on, acting more as a management-focused committee. Sometimes the staff are volunteers too in those early years. So the line between governance and management is often very blurry or non-existent. And that's okay. 
There are many small not-for-profits that, even after a long period of time, have remained small. In these not-for-profits, the board and management have a clear understanding and have clearly chosen to operate on a shared management responsibility basis. These smaller not-for-profits tend to operate with a mixture of staff, volunteers and board members acting together in loose formation and structures using committee decision-making processes to operate. In these cases, a governance model would not be an appropriate framework for them to consider. However, let's imagine that our hypothetical small not-for-profit has experienced a period of rapid growth over its first few years. After significant growth in size and complexity in an organisation, the board needs to know when it's appropriate to consider a move from its management committee mode into a governance mode. If the board continues to stay in a management committee mode in management mode and run the organisation by committee, this gets harder and harder for both the board and staff. As volunteer board members trying to operate a large not-for-profit in management committee mode by meeting monthly or more frequently is ineffective, disempowering for the staff and risky. The risks are significant that a volunteer board will not be able to make consistently healthy and informed operational decisions in a large not-for-profit. For a start, they're two steps removed from the day-to-day -day action of the organisation. It's management and their staff that have the direct relationship with the operations of the organisation, not the board. It's the staff that serve the beneficiaries of the organisation. Also, if management doesn't realise that the organisation has grown to the size that requires their role to change, they'll find themselves increasingly frustrated while they're increasingly forced to wait for decisions to be made at board level. If the board is really acting in management mode, they're taking the role of the CEO. So management, in this case, will find themselves under pressure to ask the board for more and more meetings, or to form an executive committee of the board to make decisions between board meetings. It's important for both boards and management to be aware, to see the signs when moving to a governance model makes sense. As we heard, the differences between governance and management can sometimes be confused by both the board and management. Governance should provide an overarching policy framework so that management can operate the organisation confidently within that framework. When a board decides to move to a governance focus, it's deciding to lead by looking at the present with a focus on the vision for the organisation's future. In an organisation practising healthy governance at a board level, the management of an organisation will be leading by looking at the present with a focus on day-to-day -day operations, learning from the past and being guided by the future as determined in collaboration with the organisation's governance board. Management, as a result, tends to be more task and detail orientated, whereas governance tends to look at the bigger picture. The analogy of steering versus rowing is often used to describe the difference between governance and management. Governance steers and gives the organisational boat direction through vision, strategy and establishing policy to support the organisation as it moves forward. The board, having set direction and steering, allows management to get on with the rowing of the boat, administering and implementing board policies. In this way, in governance mode, the board will be seeking to establish and monitor governance policy, while management will also seek to be establishing operational policy and carrying this out in the day-to-day -day operations of the organisation. Some other differences you'll see in a not-for-profit that's moved to a governance model is that the board agendas and business will tend to focus on being proactive. 
where management focus is necessarily reactive in relation to their day-to-day operational responsibilities. Ideally, a governance board will be seeking to initiate policy and, with management, set strategic direction. Management then administers these throughout the organisation. The board should be setting the agenda, with management following the agenda of the board. The board and management are both leadership groups in a not-for-profit organisation and, as we heard earlier, have a different focus. The board's focus is to look at the present to inform the future. The management's focus tends to review and learn from the past so that they can change the present. Changes to the present are also made with reference to the view of the future set by the board and the management as they collaborate together in strategic planning. Both of these leadership groups have leadership structures in place to help them be effective in exercising their different leadership roles. In the case of the board, the leader of this leadership group is the board chair. In management, it's the CEO or management structure established by the board. The board chair and CEO each exercise leadership within their respective leadership groups or teams. And they also have an important relationship with each other as the two leadership teams work together. It's important to foster a healthy relationship between the board chair and CEO for this reason. In order to do this, there needs to be some time investment by both the chair and the CEO between meetings. As we reflect on the most effective organizations, it's often observed that the chair and CEO are in good relationship. The relationship is a careful one though. They're not too close to be compromised by a close personal friendship, but rather have established a solid professional relationship built on trust and held at arm's length. Each party to the relationship respects each other's leadership role. It's crucial that the board chair and CEO understand their roles. These should be clearly laid out in board policy and provide a key linkage point between the board and management. As we heard, the board chair acts as a link between the board and management. It's necessary to have a clear understanding of each of these roles and their responsibilities and boundaries. This will promote mutual trust, respect, and provide the framework for appropriate information to flow within. These relationships should be centred around achieving the stated organisational objectives, usually outlined in the strategic plan. The board chair and CEO should communicate and meet regularly to allow opportunity for the exchange of information between the board and management. Through regular meetings with the CEO, the board chair will be able to provide the board all the information required for the decision-making process to be efficient. The CEO, in turn, will be able to communicate updates to the executive staff, keeping the organisation as a whole on track and working towards common objectives. It's important at this point to also note a peculiarity in relation to the chair's role. At times we notice the board chair takes their responsibility to lead the board too far. They misunderstand their role to be the top decision maker of the board, often subtly, but sometimes willfully, assuming a super board member type of status. You'll know when a board chair has this view because you'll see behaviours like the chair summarising discussion on an issue and announcing the decision they've made. Or they might shut down discussion at a point and announce a decision based on their view of the general mood of the board. This is an unhealthy chair behaviour. All board members have equal status in the board meeting. The chair's role is to be the administrative leader of the board, to make sure that the meeting process runs well and that board decisions are made by the whole board. 
So, getting back to the relationship between Chair and the CEO. Meetings held between these two leaders should include discussions centred around mutual support and advice. It's important to note here that these meetings are not for the purpose of making decisions. However, recommendations to the board for decision may be an outcome. When meeting together as CEO and board chair, the posture of meetings should not be what do we need to decide to move issues forward, etc., but rather what needs to occur in the board and management process to make sure board decisions are well made. Management is providing to the board what is required to make good decisions, and management is implementing these consistently with the mind of the board. This concept of knowing the mind of the board is an important skill for board chairs and CEOs to learn. An excellent board chair will always be thinking about an organisational or board response to issues between board meetings when they arise, and this will guide their thinking and discussions with the CEO. In this way, the board chair will better discern when a matter needs to be dealt with by the whole board and held over to the next meeting, versus a more trivial matter that can be decided via the delegated authority of the board chair between meetings. Some boards establish a board executive committee to help this process and to better reinforce that the board executive and CEO need to be thinking organisationally and representatively of the whole board, even when they meet between board meetings. This group might include additional board members, such as a deputy chair or treasurer, as well as a board secretary in a corporately structured not-for-profit. As stated previously, the board chair should maintain a professional, arm's-length relationship from the CEO, being careful not to become inappropriately involved in operational matters and avoiding any conflicts of interest. It's also helpful to maintain policy around the nature of the relationship between the CEO and board chair and between the CEO and the board as a whole to clearly establish role responsibilities and communication and authority boundaries. If any confusion arises, these policies can be referred to readily, which will help determine appropriate actions or correct behaviour if needed in a safe, objective way. Board policy relevant to the relationship between the CEO and the board, including the board chair, should include the following areas. 1. Board and CEO decision-making protocols and policy on the board's commitment to pursue a governance focus. 2. Board member, board chair and CEO role descriptions. 3. Board member code of conduct, including communication pathways through management with staff and others in the organisation community. 4. CEO relationship with the board. When first deciding to move to governance mode, boards will often feel nervous about the extent to which the business of the board changes from management matters to governance matters. This nervousness often stems from a feeling that the board is going to lose valuable connection to what's actually happening in the organisation. If all management is delegated by authority to the CEO, for example, won't this be a big risk as it puts all of our proverbial eggs in one basket? What if the CEO drops the eggs? How does the board actually know this delegated authority is being exercised well by the CEO? And in turn, that lower levels of management and staff are doing the right things. In the consulting work performed by Resolve, we've seen many boards that have decided to move to governance mode and implemented some form of policy-based governance. However, in doing so, they've often not actually implemented a critical piece to help them have confidence in delegating authority for the operations of the organisation to the CEO.
When this critical piece of the governance puzzle is not in place and a board moves to governance mode, the board will almost always feel, to some degree, that they're flying blind. Over time, the risk of the board developing a lack of trust for the CEO and other issues will increase. So what is this missing piece of the governance puzzle so often not implemented by boards? Compliance reporting. Compliance reporting is a regularly misunderstood type of reporting. Board reporting can be divided into three broad types. Strategic or assurance reporting, operational reporting and compliance reporting. Strategic or assurance reporting has the focus of reporting on how the board is assured that we're being successful and heading toward reaching our organisational vision. This reporting is usually seen in organisations that have engaged in strategic planning and takes the form of a monthly or quarterly strategic plan progress report. Effective strategic reporting will not only provide general comment on progress to achieve the strategic plan, it will also include tangible key performance indicators or stated outcomes to be achieved. In best practice strategic plan reporting, performance will be measured against targets and some form of a status indicator, such as percentage complete or the degree to which strategies have been achieved will be a feature of the report. The second form of reporting to boards is operational reporting. These reports usually describe the activities of the organisation since the last meeting and are presented in the CEO or operations report. The finance report to budget is also a form of operational report. These reports can contain compliance components, but are not themselves dedicated to a compliance function. For example, the finance report will often include reporting to budget and discussions of variances, which is a form of compliance reporting. The third and less developed form of reporting is compliance reporting. As organisations have moved to governance mode, unfortunately there have been misunderstandings around the practices need to be in place to operate under an effective governance framework. For example, in the Carver Policy Governance Model, which has been adopted by many not-for-profits, boards and management have often focused attention to the delegated authority for operational matters to the CEO and not focused enough attention to implementing the recommended monitoring and review aspects of good governance practice. Indeed, Resolve has heard in many boardrooms a regular misunderstanding relating to this delegated responsibility. Let me explain further. Sometimes when a board moves to governance mode, policies are written that delegate operational authority and responsibility to the CEO. The CEO is then left to implement management policy across the organisation to meet the requirements of that delegated authority from the board. However, what is often misunderstood is the need for structured accountability for that delegated authority. Because there is an emphasis on the relationship between management and the board, moving to one of less interference in each other's roles, the assumption is sometimes made that the compliance matters will look after themselves and that management will just take care of these. We've seen many cases where not only this has been the situation, but also where a move by the board to consider implementing improved compliance reporting is resisted by management because of a fundamental confusion about the need for review and monitoring. Boards moving to improve compliance reporting is also often perceived by management as the board not trusting them. Having a comprehensive set of compliance reports that assist with management accountability for delegated authority should not be confused with trust. These two things are separate issues. Accountability is needed to actually build trust. And conversely, trust shouldn't mean the absence of accountability. 
but build a desire and attitude in the CEO to want to be accountable for that trust. Compliance reporting should be linked to board policy and statutory obligations. Developing a risk management framework and policy approach is a good place to start in developing and understanding a healthy approach to compliance reporting. Under a risk management framework for your organization, concepts such as likelihood and impact of risks will impact the extent to which proactive work occurs to mitigate these risks. Whatever way you approach compliance reporting, remember that in many cases the board cannot actually delegate its legal responsibilities away. In many countries, areas like workplace health and safety, payment of statutory fees and taxes, child protection and privacy policies will require that a board actively monitor compliance of themselves and staff to their own policy. Also, the board governance process itself increasingly requires compliance reporting in many countries to ensure that not-for-profit organisations remain focused on their charitable status. It's imperative that the board and management develop an appropriate suite of compliance reports that help them in this important task. Another key aspect to healthy board and CEO relationship is the board understanding clearly what governance means to them and how this is expressed in the board's culture. This should involve the board actively self-reflecting in order to understand where they are as a board on the journey to governance. There are four main styles of board that author Richard Chait talks about in his book Governance as Leadership that we want to share with you. It's helpful to look at these types of boards and to reflect on your own board. You might see elements of your board in one of the types, or perhaps your board is operating in a style consistent with two or more of the styles. Whatever style your board is operating in, it's an important first step on the journey to healthier governance to understand the culture of your board. This, of course, impacts significantly the relationship you have with your CEO and also impact the choice of CEO, as you'll see as we explain the four types in more detail. Chait talks about four governance scenarios in his book, Governance as Leadership. Maybe you'll be able to recognise your board in one of these. The first scenario is described as leadership as governance. In this style, the management of the not-for-profit displace or take over the board's role by doing all the governance-type work. The board becomes a bystander and really doesn't engage in any governance leadership of the organisation. They default often to the CEO for decisions as well. They essentially abdicate their authority rather than delegating it to management. The second scenario boards engage in is governance by default. In this style, the management and board members both disengage from any governance activities. Neither group are thinking from a governance perspective. The not-for-profit can be characterised as organised anarchy, with no real shared sense of meaning between board and management. Both groups go through the motions of operating the day-to-day -day of the organisation with an occasional burst of individual governance thinking by individuals in management or on the board. The third scenario is governance by decree or order. In this style, the board displaces the management by not allowing them to engage at all in governance discussions and strategic work. All of the governance thinking is performed by the board and imposed on the management. It's been our experience that most staff in not-for-profits wouldn't tolerate a board behaving this way for long. The fourth and recommended scenario is governance as leadership. In this style, which is also the healthiest, the following characteristics are seen. 
1. The board and management collaborate together in the governance discussion. 2. There are connections formed between formal governance processes and informal thinking by the board and management. This kind of thinking is described as generative by Chait, or we also use the term discernment thinking to describe this form of connection. Generative or discernment work is the goal for both the board and their management. This kind of thinking promises opportunities to move past operational reports and even strategic plans, to start to see bigger picture trends, clues and cues, as well as opportunities not previously ever thought of for the organisation. Using discernment in the governance process is a less recognised but critical form of governance leadership from boards. It's more focused on responses to core values and core purpose. Discernment thinking by boards utilises judgment and insight often coming from the experience of board members and management. But discernment thinking can also be developed by practising to see issues faced by the organisation from different perspectives or frames. You see, when we try to discern a way forward or vision for our organisation, we are at the same time trying to make sense or problem frame the issues directly in front of us in light of that vision. Vision can be easily lost in the day-to-day -day urgency of issues. I mentioned before the use of cues and clues. These can help shape an issue, opportunity or challenge. By choosing and using frames, we are deliberately looking at the issues from the perspective of others. For example, if we're on the board of a school, look at the issues from the perspective of parents and students for a fresh insight into opportunities and challenges and choose deliberately to use these frames to look at the issues with respect to vision, core values and core purpose. Finally, try to think retrospectively, making sense of past events as you examine these as keys to future decision-making and new ideas. In this way, policy discussions and other decisions can be enhanced beyond merely dealing with the issue at hand to become opportunities for insight and direction toward the organization's vision. The Bible is recognized as a great book of wisdom, and we can learn great lessons from it, even if you don't have a personal Christian belief. In the Bible, we read all about Solomon, who was famously asked to decide which of the two women was the mother of the child brought before him. In response, Solomon decreed that the baby should be cut in half, with half given to each woman. At this point, the real mother cried out and asked the king to give the baby to the other woman out of love for the child. Solomon used this process to determine that this was the real mother of the infant. Now, in the backstory to Solomon's great wisdom, he was asked by God for whatever he wanted. And he said the following, Give me a discerning heart to govern this people and to distinguish between right and wrong. Solomon realized that decisions are often unclear. There are sometimes no clear answers or even multiple right answers to choose from. How does a board develop a discerning wisdom? Do we just need to hope that we can find some wise board members? Can we do anything to develop an attitude of discernment to help us make better decisions? Believe it or not, a not-for-profit board can practice behaviours that will help develop discernment skills in their governance leadership. Board discernment can help transform board meetings into generative spaces where the board and management collaborate and practice this type of leadership together. The first way to foster board discernment is to embrace the idea of freedom.
everyone in the boardroom should be indifferent or radically free to follow the discernment process, wherever it may lead. An example of this style of discussion is sometimes seen as brainstorming sessions, where the facilitator has stressed that the aim of the session is to think without boundaries, to stretch the imagination and not restrict discussions. Complete openness is the second type of behaviour that a board can practice. Bold openness and freedom of speech without being cut off or ridiculed is an important practice. If your boardroom is safe, then board members and the CEO will be encouraged to share their ideas that previously they may have withheld because they thought they weren't good enough or would be ridiculed by others in the room. The chairman's leadership is important here to make sure that as ideas are shared, other board members don't jump in immediately to criticise or put the idea down. To use a football analogy, it's always okay to play the ball or issue, but never okay to play the person. A third practice to try is patience. So much of a board meeting seems to be rushing from one item of business to the next. Learning to be patient as a board means allowing time for reflection on big decisions and time for questions, discussion and clarification in relation to the business of the meeting. If you incorporate the three practices we've talked about into your board culture, you'll start to see better decision-making, along with an increasing sense of rightness or peace when decisions are made. You will also see better decisions being made as you practice collaborating with management as a board using these practices. In this way, shared leadership can encourage a move to transformational rather than transactional discussion and decisions and much healthier relationships between the board and management. One aspect of the relationship between the board and management is accountability. How should a board look at its relationship with the CEO in terms of monitoring performance? It's all well and good to have lots of collaboration around strategic planning, but what if things aren't going so well? Can we have difficult performance discussions with our CEO without relationship suffering? Or is this inevitable when you mix organizational practices with personal relationships? I know in loads of organizations that I've worked with, I'll often find really healthy CEO and board relationships that run well for many years. Then, for no apparent reason or because of a change in board membership or other issue in the organization, the relationship changes almost instantly and can go from healthy to unhealthy. Can the board set up practices and policy in such a way as to provide regular feedback to the CEO and from the CEO to the board so that these surprises are minimized? Monitoring and evaluation of both management and the board need to occur in any not-for-profit organisation. To work at its best, monitoring and evaluation needs to be both informal and formal. There are many boards that have only pursued informal and relational methods in the monitoring and evaluation of themselves and the CEO. But this is not enough in our view. This is because the informal processes rely on a very high degree of relational trust and confidence that is difficult to maintain when the stress of the organisational issues come into play. Formal monitoring and evaluation processes become effective at this point because in their design they're inherently objective. Informal relational processes are rarely so, and even if they are, can easily be perceived not to be, either by one or both parties, in a conflict or performance management situation. 
The board, in summary, needs to evaluate the CEO formally and informally, and needs to go even further to evaluate other areas that the board is responsible for. There are four main areas of board work that needs to be monitored and evaluated. 1. The board and CEO relationship, as we've just discussed, where the board monitors the operational and professional performance of the CEO against the CEO's role description and the strategic and operational plans of the organisation. 2. Board process, where the board monitors its own performance against its board process policy. 3. Executive boundaries policies, where the board puts clear boundaries or limits on CEO action, and this is monitored via compliance and operational reporting. And finally, 4. Mission goals, where the board monitors the progress of the strategic plan mission goals against the established core values, core purpose and vision of the organisation. Let me unpack a little more of each of these four areas where the board needs to monitor and evaluate performance and suggest how the board can do this. The board and the CEO's relationship should be assessed at least annually, which is often performed via informal meeting or using internal surveys or interviews. This assessment should centre around policy in the areas of relationship with the board, with the opportunity for the CEO to give feedback from their perspective on their relationship with the board also. A more formal external appraisal of the CEO is recommended every three years. With board process, the first step, if your board hasn't done so already, is to make sure you have in place board process policies. This set of policies will outline things like board duties, roles and responsibilities of the board and the chair, board meeting process, board professional development, succession, induction and more. Then, once a year, the board should assess itself against these policies. A short survey or meeting to discuss how the board is going are both good options. This should be an opportunity to look at the policies in this area to make sure that the board is achieving its stated outcomes. Boards can also assess policies over a cycle of review, using a board calendar to track this monitoring and review work. At Resolve, we recommend an annual informal assessment of the board and every three years, an external assessment by a qualified governance professional to help provide feedback to the board on how its governance and leadership is going. The third type of board work through policy are executive boundaries policies. These are best monitored formally through regular compliance reporting. The CEO provides reports to the board by exception, which means that whenever there is a breach of policy, the board needs to know about this and the corrective action applied by the CEO. Compliance reporting around statutory responsibilities is a little different, as these areas often carry legal responsibilities for board members. In these areas, formal compliance reporting should also be provided regularly to the board, confirming positively that compliance matters have been adhered to. Finally, mission goals of the organisation should be reviewed and monitored informally and formally. Regularly, informal touch points will be observed by the board in and out of board meetings, as evidence of mission being implemented to achieve vision. These will speak for themselves in the day-to-day -day operations and progress of the organisation. A more formal process is also recommended to monitor mission goals. Resolve recommends a quarterly annual action plan report to the board be used to track progress towards the organisation's strategic plan. As we stated earlier, monitoring and evaluation practices performed by the Board of Management are sometimes misunderstood as invasive, or perceived incorrectly as evidence that the board does not trust the CEO.
Worse, some CEOs misunderstand governance at its basic level and might believe that monitoring work of the board is inappropriate and actually the board engaging in management work. In these cases, you'll see an active resistance from management to boards seeking to move into this important work. If board monitoring and review is done well by the board and understood by the CEO, it actually provides a framework for greater accountability and freedom for the CEO. Trust leans heavily on one-to-one personal relationship to work, whereas accountability, monitoring and review relies on objective policy and practices that stand the test of time and whatever underlying relationships are being experienced. Well, that brings us to the end of this Governance Ideas presentation. For more information on governance, management and leadership or finance ideas, visit us at resolve.consulting.com.